0: Welcome to Mammoth Community Christian Church. It's a joy to worship our Lord with you today. So we've been working through this logic of authenticity uh, throughout this year and, and our time together today, it's kind of a summary, sermon where we're going to just review some of the important things we've learned, put some pieces together, and then we're going to see a sharp application that Paul gives us uh, for how we can more deeply live out this logic of authenticity. And the parable that's been kind of introducing and framing the logic of authenticity for us throughout this year is the parable that Jesus gives us of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. And you'll remember that the, the tax collector is the model for us of what godly authenticity looks like. Remember, he's aware of his sin. He knows his shortcomings. And so in the temple, he just humbly prays to God. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Humble authenticity. And this authenticity is the opposite. We've been learning of the sin of hypocrisy, which is modeled by the tax collector in that same parable. The, the, I'm sorry, the, the I... I'm sorry, the the sin of hypocrisy is modeled by the Pharisee in that same parable. The Pharisee tries to hide his sinful heart. He begins to believe that he's right with God because of all that he does for God. And so he looks down on those around him, especially the tax collector. He looks down on everybody who he thinks are not doing as much for God as he is. Yet God is pleased with the humble authenticity of the tax collector. God has mercy on him, but God is not pleased with the prideful, hypocritical heart of the Pharisee, and he leaves not right with God. We've been working our way through Romans chapter 8, and we've seen that the logic of authenticity begins with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. On the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, two goats are brought forward to atone for the sin of Israel. Uh, so that Israel may be healed and brought into right relationship with God. And these two goats point ahead to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. These goats make at one atonement, reconciliation, healing that relationship between the people and God. And this occurs through two ways, substitution and exchange. Through substitution, Jesus takes our place under God's judgment. He gives his life to pay the penalty for our sin. And by this, we are spared the punishment our sins deserve. We're offered forgiveness. We're invited into the eternal life of God. And then an exchange also occurs, along with this substitution. As a high priest would place both of his hands on the second goat's head, he'd confess all the sins of the people, and by this he'd place all those sins on the goat, and the goat would then carry those sins away outside of the camp. In the same way, an exchange occurs where we give Jesus Christ our sin. He removes it from us. Jesus gives us his righteousness. For this reason, Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then we turn to the next step in this logic of authenticity, which is that Jesus' victory on the cross not only opens the way for us to enter a living relationship with God, it also transforms how we live. In our struggle against our sinful flesh, Paul tells us to notice the direction of our minds in Romans 8, verse 5. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Furthermore, Paul tells us in the next verse, Romans 8, 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. From this we learn that the direction of our minds reveals the direction of our lives. We also learn that God calls us To by the spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body so that we may live, Romans 8.13. To understand this better, we turn to a scene from C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We looked at Eustace. Eustace allowed his selfish, greedy, dragonish heart to lead him into a dragon cave where he became a dragon himself. Aslan later leads Eustace to a pool of healing, but Eustace must first remove his dragon scales, which represent his sinful flesh. No matter how many times though Eustace claws away the the surface layer of his life, of his scales, he finds a new layer of dragon scales underneath. He can't free himself of his dragon flesh. Finally, Aslan, who represents Jesus, takes his lion claws and tears deeply into Eustace and tears and removes deeply this this dragon flesh, these deep scales, so that Eustace can become a boy again, but this time a boy who's been deeply transformed. In the same way you and I lack the power in ourselves to remove our sinful flesh. We lack the power to put to death the misdeeds of the body. The good news though is that if we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our rescuer, God gives us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit provides the power we need to put to death our sinful flesh the misdeeds of the body. By trusting in Jesus, we are united with him in his death so that our sinful flesh is put to death in his death. And we are also united with Jesus in his resurrection so that his righteous life may now live and flow in us and through us. Today we're gonna see how Paul puts these pieces together that we've been learning and studying and how the picture that Paul forms of our death in Christ and our life in Christ can set us free to live this life of authenticity like the repentant tax collector in Luke 18. Who's justified before God who's made right with God because of his humble repentance and not because of the good work he's done this cohesive picture Paul provides also gives us clues for how to avoid living like the proud Pharisee who looked down on everybody else but who was not justified before God. He was not right with God. This cohesive picture that Paul provides, that ties together these pieces we've been studying in Romans 8, can be found in Galatians chapter 2. There Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In January, I mentioned a conflict that developed between Paul and Peter. Paul was living and ministering in Antioch, the location of the very first multicultural, multi-ethnic church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles are those who are not Jewish ethnically or culturally. Peter had visited Paul and others at this church, but Peter was under pressure from culturally Jewish Christians who believed that all followers of Jesus need to become culturally Jewish and follow all the rules in the law of Moses. And so Peter gave into this pressure. Even Peter made a mistake. Peter gave into this pressure, and and so Peter began to separate himself from Gentile Christians who believed in Jesus. They they followed Jesus, but they were not doing all the external rituals and rules found in the law of Moses. In other words, Peter and those pressuring Peter were falling into the trap of basing their view of whether a person is accepted by God or rejected by God based on whether a person follows Jewish external ritual customs. They judged a person as accepted by God if they did a lot of external good works for God. They judged a person as unacceptable if they did not do enough external good works for God. Of course, this is the same mistake the Pharisee made in Luke 18. As you know, our church is part of the Thriving Immigrant Church Initiative. We call it TICI for short. It's a two-year journey with 10 other immigrant churches that has two goals. First, to strengthen the relationships between the first generation and second generations in our immigrant churches. And second, to enable immigrant churches to more effectively reach out to people in their local communities beyond their own dominant ethnicities. Just this past week, our TICI team, in the picture here, this is our our MCCC TICI team, we traveled to Chicago to meet with the leaders of 10 other churches throughout the United States. And our local TICI team is made up of myself, my wife Bonnie, Elder James, Pastor David, and Elder Ron. And we were so glad to have Sister Sherry and Sister Cher also join us this last week in Chicago. As part of this learning journey, we were assigned to conduct listening sessions with both the first generation and the second generation so that we could hear what issues and gifts what challenges and privileges exist in the relationships between the generations of our church. We were only asked to do two listening sessions, but because we're all overachievers, we did six listening sessions. One concern that was clearly articulated again and again in these listening sessions and in other conversations we've had is that the second generation, and even some in the first generation, feel that the first generation rightly preaches that Jesus rescues us when we place our trust in him, and that we receive this rescue as a free gift of grace that we do not deserve and could never earn. So far, so good. But then the second gen notices something that sometimes seems to contradict this, which is that the first gen, perhaps because of their cultural background or their immigrant experience or the language barrier, can sometimes seem to overemphasize the importance of good works, especially in the form of academic achievement or getting an impressive job. And these outward accomplishments sometimes seem to be overemphasized in a way that feels disconnected from the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. In reality, I believe that the first gen is just so full of love for the second gen and they've needed to work extremely hard to succeed in the U.S. And so out of their great love for the second gen, they're just pointing the second gen toward the path of hard work and achievement that they've found to be the key to, to earning enough to survive in this country. And yet a theological mistake can sometimes occur when this good and beneficial hardworking perspective begins to influence the way we view our relationship with God. The mistake is this. We notice that hard work in our schools and jobs gives us worldly honor and success we then can falsely transfer this to the spiritual realm and begin to think that hard work for God must be the key to achieving God's favor, God's blessing. Do you see what's happening with this line of thinking? We're noticing what seems to work on a worldly level and then we're assuming that this same dynamic The same type of outward achievement will also work on the spiritual level. But this is the mistake of thinking that the ways of God are the same as the ways of the world. We can then even take this mistake one step further. We can make the further mistake of beginning to think that worldly success such as getting into a prestigious college or getting a high paying job reveals that we're also spiritually successful. We can make the mistake of thinking that the things that give us worldly honor are also the things that give us spiritual honor in God's sight. But this is a false conclusion God says in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And the specific context in which God makes this remark in this passage in Isaiah is that God is calling wicked and unrighteous people to turn to him. And he's saying that he will have mercy on them and that he will freely pardon them. And God is saying, this is not how normal people think. My ways are not your ways. I have mercy on wicked people. I freely pardon the unrighteous. We want honor and status to be based on what we've done. We wanna earn it. We want then to turn to others and be able to judge them as not as good as us because they haven't done as much for God as we think we've done like the Pharisee. As though the way to achieve spiritual status, spiritual honor is the same way we achieve worldly status, worldly honor. But God says, I'm not like you. I don't think the way you think. I don't judge the way you judge. And God shows us that his way of thinking and acting is different from ours by having mercy on wicked people, by freely pardoning unrighteous people who turn to him. And this morning, if we feel shocked and scandalized, By by God's extravagant mercy and grace, then we've probably forgotten that these wicked and unrighteous people that God has mercy on are you and me. Can you see how this mistake happens? It's so. easy for us to make this mistake in, in our hard-working immigrant church of seeing that our entire lives in the U.S. depend on our hard work, and then mistakenly transferring this to the spiritual realm, thinking that everything in our relationship with God also must depend on my own hard work. When Peter was falling into this mistake, though, Paul said this to him, He said, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Here Paul's referring to the Jewish cultural view of the works of the law, but we also have our own cultural view of the works of the law. For Jews, you received honor and status by being circumcised, undergoing rituals of purification, observing certain holy days and religious feasts. Perhaps for us, we receive honor and status by going to certain schools and having certain jobs. But Paul's saying don't make the mistake of thinking that the ways of the world are the ways of God. The Jewish works of the law do not make a person right with God and they do not reveal a person's actual spiritual status before God. Likewise, our own works of the law of getting into the right schools and achieving a certain level of financial success or job placement do not make us right with God. And these things do not reveal our actual status before God. Like the Pharisee who thought so highly of himself, because of his worldly achievements, it's possible that we could get into the best schools and we could achieve the best jobs, but then we can make the mistake of looking down on others as being less than we are because they don't achieve what we did. And if that's our attitude, then like the Pharisee, we too will not be right with God. This is why understanding and living into the truth that Paul is teaching us in Galatians chapter two is so, so necessary. After Paul tells us that he confronted Peter and reminded him that no one is made right with God through Jewish cultural achievement and that we're only made right with God by believing in Jesus Christ and receiving a relationship with God through the free gift of God's grace Paul makes a key statement in verse 19. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Remember, right before this, he's saying that according to the religious cultural standards of the Jewish law, he and everyone else will always fall short. There's no way to achieve this right relationship with God by trying hard enough, by doing enough good things. And so Paul needed to die to the law so that he can live to God, live for God, and he explains how this occurs in the next phrase. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. This is what Paul referred to in the previous verse where he says, through the law, I died to the law. Christ fulfills the law of God by taking upon himself all the judgment and punishment that the law declares we deserve because of our sin. Christ suffers and bears this punishment in our place through his death And the miracle of grace, is that when we trust Jesus Christ as our rescuer, we are united with him in his death in such a way that not only our sinful flesh dies through the death of Christ, but also all of our human attempts to fulfill the law in our own strength, die with Christ. And when, we, and when we, through Christ, d- die to this ultimate law, God's law revealed in the Old Testament, we also die to all the other lesser human laws that people invent and use to burden others with expectation and demand and pressure. We're not talking about criminal laws here. We're not talking about moral laws. We're talking about cultural, human-derived social laws that govern whether we accept somebody or reject them, whether we give them a platform or cancel them. Through Jesus Christ, we are set free from the need of trying to live our lives to meet expectations and demands of other people. We are set free from needing to earn God's favor through our own good works. And we're also set free from needing to earn cultural or social honor through getting into elite schools or being hired by impressive companies. Jesus Christ sets us free. Yes, we should work hard, and if these blessings come our way, then we thank God, we praise God, because He's the source of all good gifts. But we never, ever base our self-worth on these things. And we reject the world's way of ranking people's importance according to these measures. Paul then says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That part of us that was trying to earn God's favor and righteousness through our good works, and that was trying to meet the expectations and demands of others through school or work achievements has been crucified with Christ. And so we no longer live in our sinful flesh and we no longer try to make ourselves right with God in our own strength. I no longer live, Paul says, but then Paul tells us the next step, but Christ lives in me. Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfills the righteousness of God in every way now lives in us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us his own life. Allowing his life to flow in us and through us moment by moment. So that we can now experience the joy not only of union with God, but also so that we may experience victory over sin through his life, his power in us. Then as Jesus lives his life in us and through us, we're set free from needing to earn God's favor, God's blessing through works of the law, we're also set free from all other lesser human expectations and demands that others put on us. This is why Paul writes in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We're set free from the law of God. We're set free from the social laws of other people. And Jesus sets us free so that we may simply experience the joy of living in the liberty of God's grace. And Paul commands us to stand firm in this freedom of grace. Now we may understand this conceptually this morning, but what does this look like practically? It means that each one of us is totally and completely loved by God in Jesus Christ. And that when we place our trust in Jesus as our rescuer, we're set free again from needing to earn God's love. We're set free from needing to prove our own worth. We're set free from needing to impress those around us. We're set free from needing to meet the expectations and the demands of others. Let me tell you today about somebody who taught me what this looks like practically. Perhaps we don't have tax collectors around us that we can identify and look down upon like the Pharisee did. But there are people around us who achieve less than us. Like my friend Gordy, who experienced homelessness for many years. Let me tell you a little bit about him. I was living and ministering in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis, in a part of the city called the West Bank. And Gordy was one of the people of the neighborhood experiencing homelessness. But Gordy wasn't a typical homeless person. He was older. He had been a US soldier during the Korean War and he had by this time become a grandfather figure who looked out for the younger street kids in our neighborhood. He also looked quite intimidating. He was this big tough guy. He had this leathery weather beaten skin and he had this huge iron gray beard that went all the way down to his belly. And Gordy was loud. Everyone got out of their way when he was walking down the street. Nobody messed with Gordy. Everyone left him alone. Each year our inner city ministry would make a trip to the gathering, an event in a national forest somewhere in the U.S. where tens of thousands of people would gather to search for spiritual truth. And so there'd be a Buddhist camp, a Hare Krishna camp, all these other religious camps. So we, we went there and we set up the Jesus camp. And every day we'd serve food for free to anyone who is hungry all day long. And then at, we'd invite everyone to our worship services at night. And we'd talk to everyone who'd listen to us about Jesus. Well, one day at the gathering hundreds of miles away from our neighborhood, all of a sudden down the path, we see someone walking. We couldn't believe our eyes. It's Gordy. How on earth did he get there? We couldn't believe it. But then he seemed even more surprised to see us than we were to see him. And he loudly exclaimed, he said this, I thought I was the only Christian on the entire West Bank. And then it was our turn to be really shocked. We were like, wait, Gordy, you're a Christian? About a year and a half later, I moved to Los Angeles to attend Fuller Theological Seminary. One Saturday, early during my time there, I decided to drive to the beach. So I took the 405 to Santa Monica Boulevard and was driving west toward the ocean when I passed a bus stop bench where someone was sitting who looked a lot like Gordy. And so I I took a right hand turn, I went around the block and I slowly pulled up to that, that bus stop and I stopped, I threw open my passenger's door and I said, Gordy, get in the car, it was Gordy. He threw his backpack in my back seat, he sat down next to me in the front seat and we took off. Two guys from Minneapolis went to the beach. We spent that entire day together. For part of it, we, we took off on the PCH Highway, where there's mountains on one side and the ocean on the other. And we talked and talked about our lives, about what was going on, about, about God, what God was doing in our lives. At one point, I asked him if he needs a place to stay, and I was a little nervous that I might need to make space for him in my tiny studio apartment in Pasadena. But he said, no, no, I I, I like sleeping on the grass in Santa Monica. And he told me all he has to do is fall asleep on the grass, and then he'd wake up with a $20 bill laying on his chest. I smiled. I didn't tell him what I was thinking, but I was thinking, Gordy, that's only because you just look so rough. You look like you desperately need that money. Finally, at the end of the day, he asked me to drop him off at Palisades Park on the cliffs of Santa Monica. Before I did though, we bowed our heads together and we prayed together for God's blessing and protection and guidance in our lives. We pray that Jesus would walk closely with each one of us in our very different adventures. And as I drove away, I had such a strong sense that I had just spent the day with somebody who's extremely important to Jesus Christ. Gordy had not achieved success by any worldly measure. He had not achieved honor through impressive earthly achievements. And yet I know he was deeply loved by God, completely accepted by Jesus Christ. When we trust in Jesus Christ as our rescuer, we are crucified with him And the fact that we've been crucified with Christ means that all of our earthly measures of human success and worth, which are based on our human flesh, are removed. These human measures are removed. We've died with Christ and this means that we live on a different basis. We live according to different measures than Ever before and now Christ lives in us we're set free from sin and guilt and we're set free to live in the freedom of God's grace which God pours into our lives not because of our hard work not because of our earthly achievements but simply because God loves us in Jesus Christ let's pray Lord, today we just ask that in a fresh way that you would allow the good news of your grace to transform how we think, how we live, how we see the world, how we judge ourselves and one another. And Lord, that we would be so transformed by your grace that we could live in the freedom that you give us through your death and resurrection as the power of the Holy Spirit fills us and enables us to please you. We pray this in your name, amen.